Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Hello, and welcome to Heritage Foundation's event for today. My name is Brent Sadler, and I'll be the moderator for today's discussion on the lessons that we can learn from last year's West Kapala incident in the South China Sea, especially as it informs future naval presence and effective policies countering China's efforts to undermine the rules-based order in maritime Southeast Asia. For the sake of background, if we can go to the next slide, and again, the handout that's included in the tabs, if you, if you look in the handout section, you'll see this, this timeline of events that, start, that stretches from December of 2019 and all the way up until September of last year, a series of military as well as diplomatic initiatives in Southeast Asia, centering on the incidents and events of the West Kapala survey operations chartered by the national company of Petronas in Malaysia. And with this, I will now like to turn into a polling question to kind of set the stage from you, our audience, perceptions. The key question is, before we move into today's discussion is, has the Navy up until now played a positive and an effective role in South China Sea? I will give you a few moments for your answers to come in, and then I'll move into introduce our keynote speaker for today with a lot of firsthand knowledge of the region and of this incident in particular. All right. I think at this point, we'll go ahead and conclude the poll. And as you can see, pretty much an overwhelming yes response. And with this now, if I can ask General Stevel to join me on screen, I'll give you a little bit of background about today's guest speaker. Uh, has a lot of firsthand knowledge and experience stretching back many years in Eastern Asia and Southeast Asia specifically. Starting with his last operational tour as an Air Force senior officer, as a wing commander in Misawa, Japan, from 2008 to 2010, Followed this with a stint as the senior defense official in defense at Teche in Beijing from 2011 to 2013, which was then followed by his last tour in active duty at the Joint Staff advising on all issues involving the military uh, in Asia. After retiring from the Air Force, he then moved on to Hawaii, where he was the director for the China Strategic Focus Group directly advising not just the commander of Indo-Pacific Command, a four-star admiral at the time, but also the wider interagency across the U.S. government back in D.C. with frequent calls for information and travel for very high-level discussions and dialogues. His most recent assignment out of uh, or returning back to government service was as the Assistant Secretary of State, and his experiences not, and uh, observations from this time will be key in today's discussion. He was the Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian Pacific Affairs. Before I turn it over to, uh, to the general to, for his prepared comments, I also want to, for the audience, the discussion today will be moderated by myself. I have a few questions already that have been submitted, and I will then look and I will gather your, your queries and questions as we go uh, after the prepared comments. Over to you, sir. Hey, thank you for the introduction and the opportunity to uh elucidate on an event that, frankly, I don't remember very well, and that's going to be my first point, is uh, the interagency coordination on this, the, the work we did between state and defense on getting to this point where uh, naval presence uh, was a key factor in resolving uh, this issue, uh, was effortless. And, and I think that's a, a great point, and it's a great contrast to how things have gone in the past, where there have been episodes of micromanagement um, rather than 
what I call detached mutual support and interagency coordination. So that's the first point is when you raise this, I had to actually go back and read a little bit on it and say, oh yeah, I remember that. But mostly at the time we were focused on COVID. Second thing is the U.S. does have interests in the region. And so when you do have um, countries in the region claimants complaining uh, or, or concerned about militarization and all those things, you say no, noted, um, but we also have interests uh, in uh, keeping things calm in the region as do others. And so the third point is that we should never uh, forget that we have allies and partners who share our, our worldview and would like to join us in helping uh, manage these, these issues as they arise. So uh, background at the time, uh, COVID was uh, raging uh, at this period. Uh, the USS Teddy Roosevelt uh, was pulling into Guam sick. And we do believe that there were it, a calculus in Beijing that this was maybe a time to try something and see how how down the U.S. was, uh, how, how injured the, the U.S. Navy was or incapable of, of executing this mission. I think we dissuaded in that of that notion pretty well. Um, five years prior to that, we'd say we did the Sinook um, oil rig in Vietnamese waters doing about the same thing. Uh, that was handled differently. And the way this went down, I think, uh, showed there was a learning curve from that. So they're more contextual. And finally, um, look at the geography on this and where this took place. And it is a long way from Hainan Island. So although it was an away game, you know, presence-wise for the U.S., but we're very careful. We're very comfortable with away games. It was a, an away game for the PRC. And it happened over the top of uh, James Shoal, which we can have that conversation about uh, Chinese claims as a, the southernmost point of land for the Chinese empire when it's 30 meters submerged and it claim, has no real uh, claims to um, territory. Uh, and then... Finally, at the time, one thing to consider is the ASEAN, ASEAN interests. Vietnam was a, the chair uh, in 2020, a very important, critical, pivotal year. And I'll always uh, pat Vietnam on, Vietnam on the back for how they handled that uh, and, and the, how they set up the current uh, code of conduct discussions that China's trying to push through uh, in 2021. So coordination, I mean, how did we get to a point where uh, this pretty significant activity didn't really blip on the, the screen uh, in the State Department. And it has to do first, first off with personal relationships. Randy Shriver, Matt Pottinger and I had breakfast every every Tuesday morning going into this and we continued that with, with their uh, replacements. Uh, Reed Warner and others, we had very strong personal network relations. And as Brent mentioned, I had just come out of PACOM and I had a career in the military. Therefore, one of my goals as the Secretary at the State Department was to do a better job of stitching those two organizations together. Uh, whether he succeeded or not, whether it will last after I left is to be determined. But I think uh, those relationships matter a lot because from those relationships results in trust. And that trust is what allowed us to go, you got it, DOD, we know you're good. Hey, Calm, I work with you, I know you guys, and uh, you know best, knock yourselves out. Um, I'll leave it at that. On U.S. interests, um, with or without the request of claimants, the U.S. has interests in both the ability for the USS, U.S. Navy to actually operate in the region, to transit the region, uh, and then there's also the trade interests involved. And so we need to get our heads around uh, working with ASEAN, especially with the, the South China Sea claimants, um, uh, to understand that we too have interests. And then that message will resonate in Beijing to say, because they say, hey, you guys, Let's divide the Pacific of Hawaii. You guys got the East, we'll take the West. No, 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 we have interests, we're a global power and therefore we will be there. Um, the South China Sea policy change was in work. It had been in work for a year. Um, and so it rolled out after this. You know, there are those who would say that the timing was related. It was not. 
would have been very fortunate had the timing actually preceded, had we actually rolled out that policy change, that would have been a good asset test for whether uh, the PRC understands the impact of that. But I will say, in hindsight, we've seen no more of this sort of activity. Um, Chinese, you know, uh, that I can that I can recall uh, of Chinese swarming um, other countries' uh, activities and claims and the rest. So, to the audience, I would ask your thoughts on whether the July change on the U.S. POS position on uh, maritime claims in the South China Sea, which now comport with the 2016 UNCLOS um, ruling, pretty simple. A task, although it wasn't simple to execute, uh, you know, by aligning that, what has been the impact been in the region? In my experience, from what I have heard from our counterparts, it was a very welcome change, uh, and it has enabled them to stand up for their own interests, which uh, is what was the goal, actually. On that, we can also talk about support, rhetorical support. When the U.S. makes policy move, or when we send uh, increased posture in the region, we would love to hear our friends and allies and those who benefit from that activities you know, say, yeah, we agree, thank you. That has not been the case over time. Um, and we hope it will increase. Again, during the ASEAN uh, chairmanship of Vietnam, we got a lot more of that support. We should hope that, we do hope that trend continues uh, in this year. Um, finally, uh, allies. One of the discussions on this is U.S. Navy region, how does it compare with the PRC? Remember, in the eastern and southeastern maritime regions, that is where the PRC is strongest. That's where the PLA Navy is strongest. That's where they have the forces concentrated. We are global power. We spend a lot of time in the Middle East. You mentioned the rebalance. Uh, it's been 10 years now since we said we're going to rebalance. Uh, we're still trying to make the number one priority the number one priority. And you've heard Admiral Davidson come online recently, uh, encouraging to, you know, DOD and, and the, the Beltway to, to actually live up to that commitment. It's happening slowly, it could be faster. So when we look at our presence in the region, at the top of my day planner, you guys heard me say this before, every month at the top of the day planner, I wrote in big letters, multilateralized. We're not in this alone. And when the US um, comes in this in a bilateral sense, I think Beijing welcomes that. When we show up with allies and partners, when the UK says they're gonna send their combatants to the South China Sea, Germany, France, others, it's impossible for them to uh, resist. So um, I think that's a, uh, uh, a, a good outcome here. Nice. Um, finally, uh, and I'm running out of power, so I'm gonna have to disappear while you work questions here in a second. <laughs> um, uh, don't forget allies and partners, always um, take advantage that, of the fact that our worldview is good. So uh, start working your questions. I'll be back in about five seconds, right? Okay, no worries. So uh, a couple of things, just to, to kind of point people's attention to it. And also, General, just to kind of reiterate, uh, the activity that was going on at the time of the West Kapala incident, stretching from December of 2019 all the way through to September of 2020, it's also important to call out the elections in Taiwan at this time. You had Tsai Ing-wen, who got reelected, not someone that the Communist Party of China necessarily endears, uh, and her vote, the election was into January. And then her inauguration was the, the latter part of May. So that's in the background and a lot of concern. That is a, a, a an issue, a potential flashpoint between the U.S. and China and Taiwan that was going around and a lot of concern as well while COVID was un, un, was uh, basically unraveling or coming out. So uh, I wanted to highlight a few other things that were going on in the region. One was the Taiwan. Uh, 
And then I'll, uh, now I'll go ahead and turn to the, the first question. It really kind of gets to maybe dig a little deeper into the effective interagency coordination and communication. What worked, what didn't, and really with an eye to how to do this better, uh, to be more proactive. If, if there's going to be a proactive policy or strategy, what in your eyes and from your experience on this one could be done better? No news is good news. Like I said, this was not a major blip. We were focused entirely on COVID at the time. Um, it speaks to uh, a leadership and management issue that I think uh, is a lesson we should take from this. And I, I would love to hear the audience thoughts on that. Um, we should be able to conduct activities. I, look, my experience from the DOD side, looking at my uh, the guy who was in the seat before me directly micromanage every single thing we tried to do uh, doesn't help. It, it basically guarantees stagnation and uh, effectlessness. And so everybody understands the game plan. It's a football team, right? You're going to go there, you're going to go there, you're going to go there, go. And I don't need to like like monitor and, and come back to mother and say, mother, may I on this one? Go do it. We trust you. DOD, you're Americans. You're on board. We trust you. Let's not treat the military as though it's some sort of alien uh, function. Let's give them credit for you know, being in, in on board doing the same thing. So, um, so that's about all I can say. The so it was um, it was uh, OSD policy. Dave Helvey and Reed Warner. There was a little interaction with the NSC, but they too were entirely focused on COVID and and other things. And so, you know, a simple note like we got this, everybody's good, uh, and and make it happen. Doesn't mean we weren't watching closely, but it was going well. There was no need to to really like get involved. So on this, just to dig a little deeper, there's a few questions coming in on the chat line that I kind of want to bring in on this. Uh, the USS America was only in the region or in the vicinity of West Kapala uh, early on for just a few days. Um, was there any concern from, your, from the State Department perspective as more and more the naval presence was ratcheting up? Uh, on the Chinese side or on the US side? Uh, US side. And, and of course, your, your impressions of how the reaction was being gauged from the Chinese as well. Well, really I, that, part did, about the I remember, that part I did flag. Um, I remember the, 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 there's a picture, and let's not minimize the impact of imagery, just to digress briefly. We put Jim Shuto on a P8 uh, during the, the uh, island reclamation thing, and showing that activity happening, I think, polarized, energized a lot of people. Went, wow, this is bad. But it energized a lot of people except for Greenpeace. And there's another... Uh, area we should take a look at. Where the heck were those guys and why didn't they say anything? The image of the USS America going flank speed across South China Sea to get there, that that really stuck in my mind. It was one of the first things I thought about when you asked them about this. Um, it doesn't have to be, I mean, we think in terms of gray holes and combatants, it doesn't have to be uh, American. And even then, it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, a destroyer or a carrier task force. It can be just about anything. And it was. Uh, we have the ability to, old Air Force guy, we have, have the ability to launch uh, long bomber flights that can get there in the immediate, I mean, in a very short time, which uh, U.S. Air Force did. And this happened over a period of weeks. And so, uh, again, PACOM and DOD put their heads together. They uh, came up with a plan. We saw it. There was no reason for us to, to you know, vote against it. And um, that coordination went pretty well. Everybody was comfortable with the outcome. So... Oh. But as far as great numbers of, air, of, of boats and all those things, of course, China can swarm maritime militia and its mm -hmm. Coast Guard and all the rest. Uh, but then let's talk about the claimants. 
they should too, and, and I think Malaysia did, they should pitch in on this as well uh, to show their own resolve, and I believe that happened too. So that, there's a question in the chat line as well on this, the coordination with the claimant states. Malaysia, you and I have talked about Malaysia and we've talked about Vietnam in the past on this context of the West Kapala incident. A key moment was when uh, Malaysia, well actually it was the Secretary of State, we're going to come to this maybe again later, but Secretary of State, state uh, making the policy statement 13 July of last year. Uh, there seemed to be a regional kind of groundswell. Was there any pre-warning or any pre-coordination uh, for any of the statements, the one from uh, Vietnam as the ASEAN chair? Uh, Indonesia's statement actually predates it, but their naval activities, their exercises are right around the same time. Uh, could you characterize any of the coordination that might have been being going on at the time or the lead up with the uh, partners in the region? Um, I would say like a lot of things in dealing with uh, uh, allies and partners uh, and and others is you hate to get out of the headlights, right? Mm. You hate to foreshadow, uh, and and I'm not, I, I don't, I think leaking is a really bad idea. And so, I mean, we could have thought, you know, thought about getting this out early as a, uh, a the cavalry's coming. Um, I, I couldn't with any certainty tell you how long it was gonna take to get the policy statement out. And therefore, the worst thing you do is say you're gonna do something and not follow through. That says mm. you're incompetent or incapable. So. No, yeah. we didn't um, do that. Uh, you, you know, as you're aware of, typically when these things happen, we send out the, um, the the blanket cable to say notify your your capitals that this is going to happen. We did that, but as you know, we we tend to do that within 24, 48 hours. We don't give it a lot of time for folks to either undermine it or second guess or whatever. So, um, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of surprises. People, a lot of people were surprised. A lot of people were happily surprised. Same thing when we. Um, Declassified the uh, the six assurances for Taiwan and then um, up, updated Taiwan um, policy. Uh, we got a lot of positive support, which in the public sphere, back to what I was saying earlier, where people who are trying to help when they just go quiet and they thank you privately, but they're not really want to go public and say, you know, yes. we appreciate that. That doesn't help. It would be good to uh, encourage people to do more of that, to acknowledge when U.S. policy supports their interests. No, um, so there's a question or an, and actually a statement in the chat also that kind of gets to this and maybe might be worth expounding a little bit. Uh, Malaysia is a special case, I think, on this. What's the line and kind of the you know the difference between free riding and then not making a a, a visible explicit choice uh, to support a U.S. policy or you know a rules-based order? Uh, what's that line between free riding and leveraging and getting results quietly? In quiet diplomacy, I guess. That is a great question, and I have been wrestling with that question. I still don't have an answer, but so I've been wrestling with this one since Shangri-La 2014, mm -hmm. where the uh, Straits Times headline was China for Prosperity, U.S. for Security, right? That was the outcome. Uh, and this lends to this leads to that hedging, don't make us choose thing, right? We want to benefit from both, right? Uh, and there are a lot of folks in Southeast Asia who've been playing that game. I'm not sure how you force that. I don't want to force a choice. The choice is obvious, right? You don't want to be dominated by it. You'd like to preserve your sovereignty. You don't want to have your own internal affairs being directed from outside, et cetera. So I don't have an answer to that. I have been, I swear to you, I've, you know, it's 2021, seven years now, I've been trying to figure out what is the right response or solution to this hedging behavior that uh, takes for granted American commitment, because as I said, we have interest there too, and like they, can benefit from that. So why should they put in any uh, political capital to resolve it? If any of those in this 
activity know what that answer is or or have an answer i would i'm dying here so in in some i'm looking also there's a lot of questions on uh the the military presence specifically and, and for for those in the audience i would defer to the uh, to the timeline that actually gives a lot of the details the actual incident itself uh, my time in malaysia as the senior defense official defense at the shay predated this, but many of the same players and actors were in place and some of these operations uh, I'm very familiar with. And I would say there's a question in here about the effectiveness of the Giffords, but it's actually more than the Giffords, the LC, the littoral combat ship that there were a lot of pictures. Um, one is it, it, it seemed to be very effective. Uh, the Chinese seem to have blinked, at least from my perspective, and I definitely would, would welcome your response if you saw it the same way, because this is gonna lead into the next question. Uh, and that is, what should we, we're coming up again on another fishing uh, season, uh, or actually the, the, the quarantine on no fishing that Chinese impose in South China Sea. We're also coming into the normal battle rhythm of exercises, and the weather starts to become more favorable for smaller craft as well in the South China Sea. So this becomes favorable for the maritime militia kind of activities. Um, what should we expect this go around, you know, this coming into this next season from the Chinese Communist Party vis-a-vis -a, -vis a potential new crisis or showdown in the South China Sea? This will be the first year, as you mentioned, where the, the PRC fishing ban, um, you know, unilaterally imposed on some notional claims to the nine dash line. This will be the first year that the new policy uh, by the U.S. and then supported by ASEAN uh, is in force. And as you say, the question is, will they do it? I, I don't, I mean, again, uh, I will go out on a limb here and, and note that even though I think they'll enforce, they'll institute the ban, I don't think they have the ability to enforce it because you see there's a lot of um, um, other things going on. This time last year, they're getting ready to roll out the new national security law in Hong Kong. This year, they're talking about expanding that and taking out the legislature and the voting and all the rest of that stuff. I think they didn't expect the response they got to the national security law last year. Uh, and there are a number of other domestic issues going on. The Xinjiang genocide, the upcoming 2022 Olympics, and the questions of whether IOC is going to do its job and, and recommend a move, given all that's going on. Uh, if you're in Beijing right now and you're paying attention, you know, you've never been challenged by India, by the U.S., by Europe, by others, in, in, or by Southeast Asia in any way. This would be a good time to kind of consolidate, lay low, hide and bide. Whether they do that or not is anyone's guess. I think if they're smart, they will. You, can, you can't fight in all places at all times. Oh, yes. No, it's important to, to point out also the, the amount of regional reaction. Uh, so the, the in the later part of July, actually the early, I'm sorry, the later part of June, you had the Indonesians actually kind of lead the first statement about Chinese claims in South China Sea. Then Secretary Pompeo's statement about the legality or the validity of those claims in the South China Sea. And then you had fairly rapid order. Uh, you had statements from Brunei, who you never really hear about, making a comment about adhering to a two-step process in the Code of Conduct. Not, not surprising, but what was surprising was them weighing in at this, at this contentious time of Malaysia doing operations and a fairly steep uptick, a U.S. military naval presence in the region. And it was joint. It wasn't just Navy. It was also also to remind, it was also Air Force bombers made an appearance uh, at a moment, a key moment in time in, the, in this incident. And then you had uh, a military exercise, a very sizable one by the Indonesians that also kind of rounded out the, the summertime. 
And then this was capped with the Chinese doing an operational test of their anti-ship ballistic missiles, which kind of came a little too late. Maybe they couldn't plan it to be more effective as a military diplomatic statement in relation to the events of, of the West Kapala. But I think, you know, in the wider context, it's probably more appropriate as looking at a Taiwan, the issues that were sitting around on Taiwan. And there were some questions on this in the chat line about a wider question about readiness. And I'll probably take this one and please chime in uh, from your from what you were seeing at State Department, but also your experience from joint staff and also PACOM. Some things haven't really changed. There's been some improvement, uh, notable improvement the last few years on this. But uh, the impression I had is a lot of what you saw in the last year was already being planned. There's this uh, concept called dynamic force employment. There was also the known issue uh, and the need to make a very clear deterrent statement that if there was a challenge on the Taiwan presidential elections, that uh, that we actually were adhering to and supporting our Taiwan Relations Act commitments. So I think some of this was actually planned for that. It just so happened that the events in South China Sea started to uh, take off. And the fact that you had the Giffords in Singapore and you had a strategic hub in Guam from which the bombers could operate allowed you a lot more timing and, and the ability to respond. If the, if, the, if the day, if today wasn't the right day for the military diplomatic reason to send a B-2 uh, or a B-52 into the South China Sea, if they're in Guam, you can, you can do it fairly quickly within hours and planning wise. The same with the Giffords operating out of Singapore within a day, uh, she was actually on scene in vicinity of the, of the, uh, the Giffords, I'm sorry, of the West Kapala. So there, there's a, there definitely is the bases and the places that we operate from definitely enabled some of this. Uh, the question I kind of bring it back to is all of that, the military kind of framework that undergirds all this, and, and hopefully I'll be able to get uh, Admiral Aquilino, who was PAC, uh, PACOM, I'm sorry, the PAC fleet commander at the time, uh, when he, in his new role as the Indo-Pacific commander, once he gets confirmed, to come on and talk more about the, op, the military aspect of this, the operational. But the, the last, uh, the next question I want to kind of get into, uh, sir, is the policy approach. Uh, when you look at the West Kapala incident, uh, I think it's very, you made a very clear, compelling case that if everyone understands the direction and they understand the, what the effort is after, and they understand how they mutually can support each other, that there's a unity of effort, and that was very effective. But with that in mind, as you look forward, what kind of policy recommendations, you know, taking a lesson from the summer or spring of 2020, would you recommend, especially in really kind of thinking about naval presence, but it, not, not to constrain it to that? I will quote um, the great philosopher Geddy Lee from Rush, who <laughs> says, if you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. Um, too often in these policy discussions, and not in developing policy or, or executing it, uh, we take too damn long, and we end up shooting behind the target. And again, one of the great frustrations of my time in uniform toward the end in the Pentagon and before was that we're faced with these challenges, the island building campaign, say, and by the time we came up with a good solution, an elegant solution, it was too late. The thing had, the whole situation evolved, and our solution was irrelevant. It was, it was relevant a year ago, it is not relevant now. So that's the first thing is, uh, and it was a topic I was gonna cover uh, a little bit was decision superiority. Um, I have no doubt that the way we conduct business in the free world, which take, capitalizes on the brain power of everybody instead of a single strong man uh, arrangement, 
that is quick in making decisions, but often make the wrong decisions, uh, we should take advantage of that. We should design our policy to sit, you know, process to, for speed and not necessarily for perfection. The 80% solution in all these cases is more than sufficient. We just got to, one, you just have to react. You just got to do something that tells the rest of the world that you're there. Then once the U.S., we, talk, we always hear about the fact that U.S. didn't lead over the last four years. Are you kidding me? I mean, gen we'll work backwards from genocide determination and COVID and all those things going back. And to this case, by doing what we've done, we give others, ASEAN uh, partners in, in the region, uh, the space and the cover to do that. So that's the first part. One, make the decision process faster, um, come up with a policy, apply it universally. You don't necessarily have to adapt it or change it every time. Um, you know, those things come out in the wash. Second part, though, is continuity. Hmm. The electoral process, as wonderful as it is, makes it very difficult for an ally to follow along. Um, you know, free and open in the Pacific was a really good idea, and I, I wasn't involved in that. But it takes the uh, ideas of our Japanese and Australian allies, and it uses them. We don't have to drive the, you know, we don't have to uh, own the airwaves. We can definitely benefit from the wisdom of others, and we should do more of that. Our, and, and as we adapt policies uh, on things like free and, independent, or free and open Indo-Pacific, we get buy-in from our allies and partners. If we change that at the, you know, with a new administration, they're confused and we take another two years trying to figure out, right? Pivot to rebalance to, you know, every time. Because there's a time to abandon a bad policy or a policy that wasn't working, but if it's working, stick with it. And to the Biden administration's great credit, they stuck with the free and open idea and they're continuing that. This is not a partisan issue. This is about, you know, being consistent, reliable, and all the rest. So those are the two aspects of the of the policy. It doesn't have to be perfect, but it needs to be steady, consistent. So it, it seems there's a question specifically on the military element of this. Does it, so the military, the naval presence, the Air Force presence in this event, uh, did it actually help in that regard in, in bringing the partners to be more comfortable coming out explicitly making the statements they did last summer? In both regards, both um, having the capitals come out and support and then physical actions that support. Uh, bringing Australia out and I will never cease in my admiration and praise for what Australia has done. I mean, from accepting 212% tariffs on their wine and iron and coal, uh, but they've stood up since 2015 with, um, Turnbull and Garneau, they have stood up and said, enough, we're not going to allow our democracy to be uh, changed and manipulated by the United Front Work Department and by uh, Chinese uh, Communist Party activity. It's because of them that we are having this conversation today. And so, um, and Australia, you know, there was certain political capital they sacrificed, but they sent ships out as well to join in uh, this activity. That message resonates loud and clear in, in Beijing. Um, we're simply trying to maintain status quo. And if, again, if Chinese interests are going to become part of the calculus, which I completely agree they should be, it should be done in a way that is collaborative and it accepts and acknowledges their interests of all. Uh, these are things that, you know, I hope all that we're talking about, these are messages they took in Beijing. Oh, yes. Uh, so one of the other things that, and, and again on on the chat line, several of the, you know they're on the they're on the uh, watching right now. But there's an interesting, uh, I guess, analysis and comparison made to effective approaches and policies being 
basically a counterinsurgency approach to South China Sea and looking what the Chinese are running as an insurgency against the rules-based order and uh, how the military and the diplomatic and, and increasingly also the economic uh, comes to play. Um, next question on the chat. Uh, does this approach, uh, I guess continuing to deter, go beyond West Kapalas? Another, I, I think what the question is being that's being thought of here, being asked is, does this apply beyond survey operations? Could it be uh, Coast Guard operations that become a, a challenge? Does does the model still apply? Um, okay. Does the Navy presence have, I guess, would it be an effective tool if it's Chinese Coast Guard presence that you're that you're worried about, bad activity, Chinese Coast Guard. That's a whole separate kettle of fish, by the way, as to whether, if, you know, the basis, they say 9-line maritime is inherent Chinese territory, therefore what we're doing here is military operations, we're simply enforcing our own domestic laws. This is why the U.S. policy change uh, following the International Tribunal's ruling is extremely important. This is not internal domestic waters. These are international waters, therefore international law applies, and China can't use that excuse that this is, uh, you know, this we're just simply doing law enforcement. Whatever color the hull of that boat is, this is an Air Force guy talking, so Brett, I'll defer to you. I don't care what the color of the hull is. What matters is the action activity it's taking. In fact, you know, U.S. Coast Guard, I believe, when, when uh, you know, called into service during combat, takes on, you know, maritime combatant roles. Uh, and I think the Navy also does law enforcement activity as well. So it doesn't matter what the vote is. We should, that's a policy decision that needs to be made. It's a simple one, but it's a rhetorical point, but I think we should, we should make that. Yeah. Counterinsurgency. I, uh, I, I, look, I tell you, I have a, an extreme allergy to the Middle East. Um, I, I got to ask where, what are our, our national interests in the Middle East? In 1974, it was oil access, energy access, and all the rest. Uh, that, it's not just us anymore. There's a lot of other people who have interests in the Middle East namely China, in maintaining access to energy, which they, of course, need. Um, and therefore, peace and stability in the Middle East is a key interest for them. I would love to have them own that responsibility and send the PLA Navy into the Persian Gulf to maintain that stability, as with others, where we can then focus on uh, our greater interests. And therefore, a language like counterinsurgency takes us back to the last 20 years of necessary, but in a great power competition, less relevant um, activities. So I would prefer to put this in terms of a more active, vice-reactive mm -hmm. policy to say, no, we are going to assert our interests, not even reassert, we are going to assert uh, international law, uh, non-coercion and all those things in a policy like, you know, a, a presence uh, to push back on the Chinese uh, excessive claims, uh, aggressive activity and the rest. So although the counterinsurgency model might apply in certain cases, as you know, words matter when you start taking yourself down that rabbit hole, you end up back somewhere in Kabul, and I don't want to be there. So we're coming to the end. It's so, it's, so again, it's, it was very uh, worthwhile analysis. It was done by Hunter Styers a while back for Navy when I was still at the headquarters at the OPNAV uh, to kind of view it, for, view the, the situation to inform the construct, the approach, and, and also look at future capabilities. But your caution about calling it that, you know, calling our activities a kind of a counterinsurgency does carry some luggage, uh, some baggage, if you will, that we also need to consider. The uh, the last question, and this will have to be the last question before we kind of wrap up. Um, there's a question, so the Chinese have, the Communist Party of China 
has determined that their oil rigs uh, doing exploration op, like our warships, are considered sovereign territory, um, do, viewing it as territorial integrity, for example, or sovereignty. How does this change or make the potential for crisis sharper, uh, or does it, or or does it not change things uh, dramatically? On this, I, I'm trying to take things back to their most basic, because um, that's a basic guy. Um, one of the things we did in our messaging campaign, and my number one goal priority in the job was messaging, was getting the words right, is we used the words empty promises and empty threats. And this is an empty threat. Hmm. Look, if it, threats cost you nothing. Getting called on your threat, if you make a threat and you don't follow through, that costs you a lot in terms of credibility. That doesn't seem to matter in Beijing. Okay, fine, but nonetheless, they are very good at putting markers out there and then making you, forcing you to say, you know, there's risk involved, but you got to call them on that. And so this idea of um, sovereign immunity for oil rigs, uh, that's a simple maritime law issue, right? If it's a combatant, then it of course comes with sovereign immunity. That's understood globally, but to make this additional extra claim with the threat that says, if you do something to it, then we will, you know, exert sovereignty. I think just get a couple maritime lawyers out there to debate it in the open space. And I think it'll quickly come apart, call them on the empty threat and move on. And and they're fine about that. They'll, they won't, they're not going to die on that hill. They're going to allow that one to go and they'll try the next one. So, yes. you know, call them on the empty promises when they say China will continue to reform and open its markets, pick, pick, an, pick an empty promise, call them on the empty threats too. Oh, yes. No, uh, we did just that. Uh, one, just a bit of personal experience. Why not? So thankfully for the work that Andrew Erickson did years ago on the maritime militia, we were able to bring that to national attention, policymakers back in D.C., and we were able to include that into some very sharp talking points that we then you know, basically try to call the Chinese on this and say, when it comes to our naval presence, we're going to treat your maritime militia as well as your Coast Guard and your People's Liberation Army Navy as, you know, warships. They're, 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 they are government entities. And so I kind of view it the same way in a similar kind of uh, offer that up for the audience that the inclusion of those government entities, maritime entities, are viewed all the same and to kind of strike that point. I think at this point, uh, we'd like to bring kind of bring it back to uh, the questions and the polling. I've got a new one just based on the conversation that we've had today. If we can go ahead and call that up. Looking at the motivations of, and we didn't spend too much time going into country by country, but please go ahead and read the question and start answering. And the claimant states that we're looking at in this in this question are Malaysia, Vietnam, Brunei, the Philippines, and Indonesia. What are their prime motivators? And again, this is important as we consider future policies and new strategies uh, and how to improve those that are, you know, the continuity of approach where it's most effective understanding what is motivating and driving our partners in the region as well. So I'll let this sit for a little bit and, uh, and then we'll move on to the next and final question or polling question. All right, I think I'll go ahead and stop it right there. So Catherine, if you can go ahead and the results on that. Maritime security, maritime interest of the people on the water. And I can attest to some of this uh, firsthand from my time in Kuala Lumpur. Uh, you know, issues of safety and physical security of their fishermen as well as their economic rights. Uh, the next and the final question, we'll go back to the beginning and I'll give you a chance to respond to this uh, general at the end. The first question that we had today, 
and to see, go ahead and answer this, uh, let it while it's up. Wanted to see if, how the discussion today has informed and changed perhaps perspectives on how the U.S. Navy's presence has been effective or maybe not as effective as it needs to be. And I'll let this go for a few seconds as you all pick and make your decisions. And then I'll bring it back. Uh, General, if you would like, if you want to reflect on any of these uh, these responses and, and have any parting comments to make before we close today. All right, Catherine, go ahead and close that poll. And there you go. Probably a little stiffer, a little stronger on the, the yes response. Okay, I'm gonna go ahead and close that. And uh, General, over to you for any closing thoughts or comments, uh, observations on the polling questions as well. You know, on the, economic, on the uh, regional interests question, I went with economics, but I think the answer, the majority was right uh, in terms of, you know, just security. Uh, you remember the story about Indonesia getting pretty upset about Indonesian workers on Chinese fishing boats just being unceremoniously dumped over the side in this complete tone-deaf uh, cultural approach that we've seen just in inside China as well. So, yeah, I think it's a combination of both. Uh, the security aspects, you can't have these guys plunking down right you know, off the shore like in Scarborough and other places, but the, uh, the denial of yeah, economic benefit of something that's rightfully theirs with the, uh, the law of the sea is, is also important. So it's a mix, obviously. And the second thing is uh, I would never say anything good about the Navy, not unless forced, but absolutely presence matters. And with this, uh, again, a another recommitment to um, prioritizing the Indo-Pacific as the primary theater and, um, you know, the contest with China as the number one priority, we, we need to see some resources put against that. And so on behalf of Admiral Davidson, who I don't speak for, but I did at one point, um, yes, they, they're, you know, it's time. And in that, of course, you've got into global interests, you need to then decrement elsewhere, but with allies and partners, you should be able to hand off to those uh, to pick up where their interests are greater while we focus on what we consider the number one priority. Thanks. And it's been a great session. I hope to hear more back uh, on this to see where um, I can change my thinking as well, although it doesn't really matter as much now, does it? Well, I think that we'll be looking to see the future work that you'll be doing at the East-West Center there in Hawaii in the near future. I think there'd be a, sh a lot of interest and appetite on the Allies and Partners discussion. And, and on that, I, I did want to direct the audience, and if you could talk about that picture in the background. Ooh, we have a, do we still have a little bit of time, Catherine? The picture over your shoulder, General, with you surfing. Can you so give a little background on that? It's my first fauna um, amphibious op in South China Sea. And uh, yeah, a great trip to Brunei. Uh, you know, Ambassador Matt Matthews just passed, so had a great uh, memorial service for him. But uh, yeah, yeah, I like to surf, and uh, the opportunity presented itself. And who gets to surf in the South China Sea? You know what I mean? I guess that makes me Navy. Absolutely. Well, thank you again for your time today, General. The insights are very welcomed. Uh, I apologize, we weren't able to get to everyone's question. I tried to wrap up many of them and consolidate them as best as I could. Uh, but of course, we will share those with our speaker and look forward to seeing many of you at future discussions. We'll continue on this South China Sea discussion, hopefully in the future with uh, listening to someone from Pacific Fleet and maybe the future Indo-Pacific commander. With that, again, thank you for your time today and thank you for your support.